This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Barbara Gill MacArthur, Vice President of Cardiac Services at the University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City. Barbara, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you and good afternoon. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Certainly. My clinical background was as a cardiovascular clinical nurse specialist, and I was able to combine a clinical practice with cardiothoracic surgery patients while holding joint faculty appointments. As I moved along, my postgraduate work was in healthcare public policy and communication. As a fellow in the Washington Annenberg program, I was able to focus on organ donation and the implementation and advancement of required request legislation back in the day. So organ allocation and distribution was and continues to be an area of study and interest for me. I had the privilege um, of serving on an Institute of Medicine committee, which provided modeling for the organ procurement and transplant network. I then broadened my work internationally, and I worked with healthcare organizations and governmental bodies um, literally around the world related to brain death legislation and the ongoing clinical care of donors. Um, All of that was in years past as transplant was developing from the middle 80s on, and certainly my area of focus was cardiac transplant. I later returned to hospital administration combined with ongoing public policy work, during which time I was appointed to the Department of Health committees studying various aspects of cardiovascular disease by five governors in three states, including two um, Bush governors. So nine years ago, we returned home to the University of Kansas Health System where I am the Vice President of Cardiac Services. So aligned with the academic and practice expertise of the departments of cardiovascular medicine and cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, we're committed here to comprehensive cardiac care. Throughout the metropolitan area of Kansas City, our secondary catchment area, which is 14 counties, and to the citizens of rural Kansas and beyond. So our work with cardiac outcomes in an innovative care and payment model um, was really an important um, focus of ours. And our model was supported by a $12.5 million CMS um, innovation award in the mid, uh, well, 2014, we received the award. And that has evolved into a care collaborative in 70 rural Kansas counties looking at outcomes and access to cardiovascular care. So it's really um, a privilege to be right in the middle of America and um, part of an organization that is very committed to cardiovascular care. And thank you for inviting me to tell the story with you today. Barbara, that, that's fascinating to, to see just how many different experiences you've had. And I'm wondering, you know, when you think about working in the public sector and the private sector and in, you know, um, the, with the Health System Academic Medical Center as well, what's, you know, kind of the biggest difference in, in between working in those two different um, areas? Well, the challenge is to garner the strengths from both. Um, 
you know, regardless of whether you're an academic medical center or community hospital, care is going to be influenced by public policy, public funding, and so forth. So the more understanding and collaboration we can have bringing the vantage points of both together, the more we believe that patients, families, and communities will benefit. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, definitely lucky to have you there at the University of Kansas Health System. Now, what are the top three biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology and heart surgery today? Well, I think if you ask any of us today um, about issues, all of us are going to start with some comments about the pandemic. So, we saw the declining procedures and the elective appointments and hesitancy for patients to present to the emergency room over the initial year of COVID. And then with rapid and exponential growth in telehealth, we were able to recover not only our volumes, but we avoided any furloughs or reductions in staff. Um, And I know that there were many hospitals that were stressed and used very creative approaches to not only dealing with the patients and families, but also the staff involved with um, the uh, effects of the pandemic. So now um, I think that it's important for all of us to recognize that we're actively researching the ongoing cardiac symptoms and impact from those with severe COVID symptoms. And that's gonna be a part of where we are moving forward. And I don't think any of us know for how long. So that's my moment of the past. Um, In terms of the three biggest issues now, um, for us and for many, I think, it's ambulatory strategies and sorting through placement options. And that's really very much top of the list. It's not only follow-up for patients, but also second opinion options and um, recognizing that cardiovascular services are increasingly an ambulatory business with competition from freestanding facilities. Um, Cardiovascular leaders have been historically really working from a limited purview with responsibility for services um, primarily on the hospital campuses, not off campus. So we know that now Payers and patients are looking for ease of access and lower costs and perhaps different venues. So CV leaders have to sort through these placement options, considering the potential of lower reimbursement, additional investments, CMS rules and state legislations, but also the potential of increased capacity on the hospital campus for higher acuity patients and lower episodic costs, and perhaps different relationships with affiliated physicians as we consider the ambulatory and outpatient um, aspects of cardiovascular care. So that's one of the number one issues. Number two, I would say, is remote patient monitoring programs. So the question is, how can we leverage this amazing mobile technology and portable digital devices that we may not have ever been able to imagine to successfully monitor patients, again, outside of the traditional hospital setting? 
So while remote monitoring may offer an inventive, innovative solution to reduce hospital admissions and perhaps overall healthcare costs, we need to consider the role of the clinicians in assessing and evaluating patient data. How can they access the data? How will they change their workflows to be able to respond in a timely way to tens of thousands of um, data points for patients outside of um, their walls? Um, while doing that, can we actually increase and leverage the very positive factors of patient engagement? Because we know that patient engagement is essential if healthcare outcomes are going to be positively impacted. So we have patients outside of the hospital with monitoring programs that have a sense of responsibility and involvement, which is very positive. But then we have to be able to figure out how we can leverage the technology and really respond to the data that we're receiving. So the interfaces between the possibilities of technology and patient engagement is key. The more patients know about their respective diagnoses and conditions, then the better the patient can make the necessary changes needed or recommended to improve their health or lessen the progression of disease processes. So I always want to be sure that we think about the remote monitoring programs, not only from the technology and data standpoint, but certainly from the patient standpoint. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we weren't um, concerned each day about patients and compliance because we have a way that we can relate to them and involve them in their care in, in a very different manner. So thirdly, I put down um, my thoughts about um, the challenge for organizations and providers to really have the ability to respond to internal and external pressures for productivity and financial success. We always talk about innovation and technology and growth, um, and those are all very positive factors, but we also have to be productive and financially successful to be able to marry the advancements with outcomes for patients. So I have some thoughts about that. If we're gonna meet those internal and external pressures, I think we have to be able to provide credible cost and quality data to stimulate engagement from providers and drive unwarranted variations in care. But instead of making it a burden and an expectation and um, an added uh, sense of commitment, you know, most all of us are data-driven and quality-bound. So let's really work on credible data um, and engagement with our providers so that um, we can meet those challenges. I think we have to be looking at some very practical aspects that say, let's centralize our supply chain strategies. They're experts and those folks can serve as a mechanism for stakeholder input and expense reduction and efficiency. Um, we don't need to do the shopping and the contracting and the cost analysis because we have a cadre of really skilled folks that will help us do that. And remembering that particularly in a nonprofit setting, 
and really any setting, the investments from dollars saved go back into the physical plant, the human resources, and the technology that we need to um, have available for patient care. And lastly, um, in this area of internal and external pressures, to really maximize and recognize the benefit of multidisciplinary teamwork, the role of the clinical pharmacists, the advanced practice providers, social workers, and other professionals must be purposeful and coordinated. Again, we're surrounded by professional resources. So this is not only for the distribution of effort, but a proven mechanism to advance the comprehensive care of the patient. So that's my pearl about how we can really deal with these pressures for productivity and financial success. Absolutely. And, you know, it's fascinating to hear you talk about all those areas. I think um, really just, you know, what sticks out to me is thinking about how the field is changing in terms of care delivery. I know you mentioned going more outpatient, becoming more ambulatory and how that will affect the, the strategy, you know, of healthcare providers and health systems. And then also remote patient monitoring and then being able to um, just make sure you've got the data in place and know, you know, who has access to it and uh, making sure optimizing that and, and keeping that safe and secure as well is just so interesting. So given, you know, all these different factors you just laid out, um, how do you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? Well, I, I wish we, I had a crystal ball and sometimes I pretend I do. Um, I think that the evolution over the next 18 months will um, include a better understanding of the impact of COVID on the health of communities, as well as the impact on the healthcare organization. It's not over. Um, we all know that we're still dealing with um, not only the virus itself, but the impact on employment and family structure and uh, factors in the community. Um, we're going to be moving on to new norms, some of which we're sensing now and some of which we will learn over the next 18 months. Um, I think the other factor over the next 18 months, or really any 18-month um, trajectory, is to follow the rapid advancements in pharmacology and technology and keeping the focus on patient-centric impact related to their comorbidities and social determinants of health. Um, even this week, this has been the American College of Cardiology um, meeting week, as well as Becker's. Um, but there's so much news about um, pharmacology and new drugs and cardio-oncology and so forth. But these studies are reminding us that it's not just the mechanism of the drug, it's putting it in that patient's framework um, to make progress. So I think that's where the evolution will be over the next 18 months. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just fascinating to watch, you know, how things are um, are, are changing and, and what's coming out and, and really see the potential there. What are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Well, I think there's a little of each um, attached to most things. Um, I tend to, by nature to be more excited than nervous about things. <laughs> but um, I think financial management has to be right there. Um, we need to understand um, the workforce 
not only providers, but um, the support staff that we need to take care of patients and families um, in today's healthcare world, um, and the increasing cost of technology. So we need to establish models for the financial management of both evolutionary and revolutionary technologies. Um, what do we need? How can we afford it? Does it make sense? How will we sustain um, the systems and the technology um, and make it effective for patients and families? And will we need um, very different models? Um, and I think those are the questions that were faced. Um, so I'm excited about evolution and revolution. And I'm nervous because we have to make good decisions. Um, we need to be nimble. And we need not only to recognize what we want, um, but what we need. Got it. Absolutely. Um, that's a really great point. And finally, before we wrap up our conversation, I was wondering if you could provide three pieces of advice for emerging leaders today. Sure. Um, you know, advice is somewhat like being an armchair quarterback, um, but it's always nice to be asked for advice. So here are my thoughts. Um, this is a really important time to engage providers and leaders and frontline managers in a timely cadence. Things are moving so quickly that our organizations have to think about communication, about sharing data and information and keep moving. Um, you don't want, there's a difference between risk taking and risky behavior, but you do have to um, really work on small tests of change, having a vision and keep things moving so that you're not uh, behind the curve. Secondly, um, gain understanding about what is possible within your practice, within your organization, within your system. Expansion, staff, how to use creativity to solve problems. Um, what is possible? And I encourage leaders to um, take that attitude toward their frontline leaders and toward their staff. Uh, what can what do you think is possible? What can you imagine? And then lastly, recognize that leadership is an acquired skill. Um, I think there are parts that are intuitive, but it's an acquired skill, just like any other competency. Um, invest in study, acquire mentorship, um, and figure out how to monitor success, not just monitoring success of an organization or of a balance sheet, but monitor your own success. So those are my three pieces of advice. Uh, that's fantastic. I, I think that's really you know helpful to think about in terms of making sure you're engaging the frontline managers and understanding you know what's possible and going from there. And then finally, you know, knowing that leadership is an acquired skill and just being able to um, keep growing and developing it. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion. I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you. It's been just a pleasure. Have a good afternoon.